Would you please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24? Luke chapter 24. And that's a text that we are going to be referring over and over again. For those who are visiting, we, we always do book by book, chapter by chapter. We just finished the book of Philippians. And in between books, I like to bring a mini-series. And we started a series on the whole Bible. What is the Bible is all about. So I want to present an overview of the Bible. And then the next book, we are moving to Genesis, Lord willing. Uh, so if you can, would you stand, please? Luke chapter 24, first of all, verse 27, you remember the context, Jesus on the road to Emmaus with the disciples, the two disciples, and it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's the whole Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then if you jump to verse 44, then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of, the, of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Uh, Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. Verses 5 and 6. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It's done. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the Beginning, and the end. To the thirsty I give from the spring of water of life without payment. You may be seated. Father, we cry out for your help. As our dear brother Dan was praying, we ask you to open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your instruction. Help us. We need your help. Help us with distraction. We pray the our hearts, our minds would be grounded on your grace. Help me to be faithful. Help the congregation to be faithful. We all have responsibilities here, so help us, Lord. Thank you for this wonderful church. Thank you for their love towards you. Thank you for their love towards me. Every single Sunday, being very patient with me, bearing me, supporting the ministry of the preaching. So I thank you for this wonderful congregation, Lord. Bless this time. Help me to be clear. Help me to be a faithful slave right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, the Guinness World Record book, such a, a famous book, the Guinness World Record, they say the 
There is little doubt that the Bible is the world's best-selling and most widely distributed book in the world. And if you think about especially in America, there are dozens and dozens of English translations. So we have NIV, ESV, NASB, NLT, BSB, KGB, NKGB, AB, ASV, HCSB, and more. Not only that, then we have dozens and dozens of different types of Bibles. Study Bible, Adventure Bible, Children's Bible, Devotional Bible, Systematic Theology Bible, Men's Study Bible, Women's Study Bible, the Life of Application Study Bible, the Thompson Chain Reference Bible, the Scofield Bible. I don't recommend that one, but they have that. Then you have Big Print Bible, Small Print Bible, Extra Large Print Bible, Bibles with leather cover, goat leather cover, hard cover, paper cover. And in light of all this abundance, you'd expect and you'd think that we all know the Bible very well, right? An abundance of Bibles and different types of Bibles. And you'd expect that uh, people, they know the Bible. Sadly, that's not the truth. The state of theology that's promoted by Ligonier they had a, a research, and they say the 2020 State of Theology survey reveals widespread confusion in the, Uni- in the United States about the Bible's teaching. And you'd hope that this ignorance of the Bible was just to the American people in general, but sadly it has infected the church, contaminated the church. Most Christians in America know very little about the Bible, There's a massive biblical illiteracy. People think that the Bible is a book that has no coherence. It's just a a, a rag bag of writings that people just added there. Matthew Barrett, he writes, When the 16th century Reformation erupted, one of the alarming dangers that became blatantly obvious to the Reformers, like Martin Luther, was the pervasiveness of biblical illiteracy among the laity. It may be tempting to think that this problem has been solved almost 500 years later. However, in our own day, biblical illiteracy is the, in the pew continues to present a challenge. Many Christians in our post-Christian context simply are not acquainted with the storyline of the Bible and God's actions in redemptive history from Adam to the second Adam. So so the purpose of this series of preachings is is to help us to see the Bible as the Bible truly is, one book, God's book. And we saw, so far we saw that the Bible is inspired by God. That's the only book inspired by God Himself. Therefore, it's inerrant and it's authoritative. That's the basic presuppositions, the basic foundation that we have as Christians in studying the Scriptures. And we also saw last Lord's Day that since the Bible is inspired, God has preserved these books. Who came up with the Bible? And we saw the answer is God Himself, the Holy Spirit. That's His book. He has preserved and given us a canon. That's what we talk about last Lord's Day, the canon the standard, the body of writings that come from God Himself. And it's the idea of canon that's important because how do you call this book here? How do we call this book? Bible, right? We call this a Bible. 
there's a reason we saw the Greek and the Latin, biblios or biblia. And the idea was that all the different books, they end up forming one book. You think about ancient times, they didn't have the codes, they didn't have a book with covers, so they would have these scrolls. The books of the Bible were in scrolls, and you had to have in different places. And as soon as Christians were able to come up with the codex, the, the book, we could put all the writings together in one book. And that's why we have the Bible. That's the name we have, the Bible, the book. The Bible is not like any other book. No other book is inspired by the triune God. So I would say that the Bible is given by the Father to reveal the Son by the power of the Spirit. And the Bible is ultimately one book given by one author, ultimately, to one people, that's God's covenant people, for one purpose, to reveal Himself to His people. And this book has one major theme. God dwelling with His covenant people through Jesus Christ. That's the theme that runs the Scriptures. That's the theme that binds the Bible. And it's fascinating, as you look at the Bible itself, and, and you look at the imageries that the Bible uses for the Bible, it's very, very telling. So, for example, the whole Bible is sometimes called the Torah. We say law. I don't like law, but Torah is better. The Hebrew idea of instruction. It's a book of God's instruction. That's one of the, the ways that the Bible describes the Bible itself. Also, the Bible is described as a covenantal book. We have the Old Testament or Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the New Testament. And that's important because you cannot have one without the other. Amen? They're incomplete. It's lacking coherence. And that's one of the things I have a hard time with. Sometimes you see just people giving the New Testament to people. It's like, ah, uh, actually you're giving 25% of the story. Still missing 75%. Because it's incomplete. We need both, Old and New Testament. The Bible is described as God's counsel. The Bible is pictured as a lamp, not lamps, different types of lamps, but one lamp. It's described as a sword. And all this paints the unity of the Bible, amen? It's one book, one story given by one major author. All these stories of the Bible find their ultimate meaning in the one story. There is a unified, overarching narrative that binds all these stories together. So, Leland Riken, he writes, What holds the Bible together is its narrative unity. Despite the many stories, think about all the different stories, especially you go to the book of Judges, you have all these judges. Then you go to Samuel, you have all these different stories, and you have uh, Ruth, and you have the book of Chronicles, and then you have Job, Psalms, Proverbs, the prophets. All the many stories... Despite these many stories, it contains ultimately one overarching story. Every story has a protagonist, and the over overarching story of the Bible is no exception. God is the main character in the Bible. His presence unifies the story. And I think there's something wonderful about memorizing Bible verses. Amen? There's something wonderful about memorizing Bible verses. Or uh, reading 
devotionals like Spurgeon's morning by morning, evening by evening. But there is a, a, a very dangerous element to that. Is that we start memorizing verses and learning this, reading these devotionals, and suddenly we don't know the story of the Bible. We just know these random verses out of the context of the whole Bible. And that's dangerous. I, I have known people who got prizes in competition of people who had most memorized Bible verses. So I, I have known guys, honestly, and people thought, oh, this guy here memorized almost Psalm 119, the whole psalm. And then you, add, you talk to the person, you think, oh, he might have a, a profound knowledge of the Scriptures. The guy has no idea about the Bible. He doesn't even know how Noah is connected to the story of the Bible. He just memorized verses. It's like a robot. And that makes no sense. That's not profitable. A text out of context is just pretext. So memorize the verses, but know the, the storyline. Know the one story. Amen? Also, because of our sins, we are tempted to read the Bible with us in the center of the Scriptures, right? If I ask you, why do you think that the book of Numbers or the book of Leviticus can become boring? And you're going to say, I don't find anything for me here. Because we, we read the Bible looking for these nuggets that will just make me happy and make me feel good. That's how we are reading the Bible. It's me in the center. Show me something good for me, for my life. And we forget that the Bible is about whom? God. So instead of looking at the Bible and reading, for example, Leviticus and say, well, what is good here for me? You should say, how is God revealing Himself here? How is God presenting Himself? Amen? One scholar says, The one thing that the Bible is not is what is so often thought to be, a theological outline with proof text attached. That's how people see the Bible. It's just uh, maybe a dictionary that you go and just pick different verses to support your ideas. The Bible, as I said, is not a rag bag with all sorts of random pieces of cloth. Right? You get a, a, a rag bag and you have all these different pieces of cloth and like if you, if you have the, the autonomy to just choose this, I want this piece of cloth here, this one here, and then it starts teaching together. No, the Bible is not there. And that's how we treat the Bible. It's a rag bag. You just go and, oh, oh, oh this, this is good for me. I'm going to take this one here. No, the Bible is actually this marvelous, this beautiful tapestry with all the pieces put together Beautifully, wisely. A tapestry in which all the complexities of the weave display a single pattern of judgment and mercy, promise and fulfillment in Christ Jesus. So it's one story. And we see that the Bible is one story by how the book begins and ends. That's very telling. And I think it was Franz Schaeffer who used to say, the most beautiful thing about the Bible is that the Bible begins at the beginning and ends in the end. And we forget that. And if you look at the beginning and the end of the Bible, you see that there is coherence. 
And just by looking at the beginning and the end, you see that there is one story flowing. So Genesis 1.1 1, 1 and verse 3, for example, in the beginning, God, God said, let there be light. There was light. And then you go to Revelation, the last chapter of the Bible, and the Lord God will be their light. And then instead of beginning, you have forever and ever. That's how a good story begins and ends, in the beginning and then forever and ever. That's right there. The Bible tells one story. It's a long, complicated story about things and people thousands of years ago, but yet it's one beautiful, coherent story. Also, we can see, as we look at the bookends of the Bible, how it is a magnificent story with coherence and connection. So, for example, Genesis 1, we have the first heaven and the earth. Genesis 2, the husband and the wife. Genesis 3, judgment pronounced on Satan. Then you go to the last book of the Bible. And starting chapter 20, we have judgment executed on Satan. Satan. Revelation 21, husband and wife. Revelation 22, the new heavens and the new earth. So you see that by pu putting the first and the last book together, you see this coherence, this beautiful story put together. Uh, so the Bible, say the Bible is God's story. And as we think about the Bible as a book, and every book that you get, you must remember that's a type of literature. And the Bible is a literary masterpiece. No other book comes close to the Bible, amen? No book comes close to the Bible. You can read all sorts of books. No other book is alive will kill you and put you to life again. No other book but the Bible. There is a preoccupation among the biblical writers with artistry, verbal craftsmanship, aesthetic beauty. And that's why sometimes when I'm preaching, I want to show you, for example, the chiastic structure. Or I want to show you, especially in the Old Testament, how the sounds, how the Hebrew words and the author is putting these words together because of the sound and brings beauty and that's what the authors of the Bible, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they're doing. There is beauty. So, for example, the writer of Ecclesiastes presents a theory of writing that stresses beauty of expression as well as truthfulness of content. So, Ecclesiastes 12 says that the author there, he labored to arrange Proverbs with great care and sought to find pleasing words. What takes place in Ecclesiastes takes place with the whole Bible, amen? Great care in, in selecting the words and putting together. Riken says, Of course the Bible is a religious book, but it's also a work of literature. In fact, it's a, it's a literary masterpiece. The Bible cannot be beat for sheer diversity of form and content, for artistry for effective power, and for the way in which it keeps sur uh, springing surprises on us. It's not simply a good book. It's the best book. This book is what? Dynamite. That's exactly what the author of Hebrews says. It's like a, a sharp sword. That's what Luther said. Remember, he, he said, this book is alive. It has eyes. It sees me. It has mouth. It speaks to me. It has feet, it runs after me. It has hands, it takes hold of me. 
Exactly, it's dynamite. And it has been changing our lives, amen? So, the outline of this morning's sermon. That was just the introduction, okay? <laughs> I'll try to move fast here. So we're going to see first the Bible as God's drama, glorious drama of redemption. And then since we're going to be partaking of the Lord's Supper, I want to I, I show how the Lord's Supper is part of this drama of redemption. Okay? That, that's my intention here this morning. So first of all, we're going to be looking this Lord's Day and then next Lord's Day as this, the Bible as God's glorious drama of redemption. That's how I'm entitled. That's one of the ways you can look at the Bible. God's glorious drama of redemption. And we're going to be looking at each word. God, glorious drama, redemption, right now. So first of all, the word drama. And I'm borrowing the definition here from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. It says that the, the drama is a composition intended to tell a story, usually involving conflicts and emotions, through action and dialogue. Isn't that the Bible itself? And typically designed for theatrical performance. Yeah, it takes place with real people in real places. It refers to a series of events involving interesting or intense conflict of forces. Exactly what the Bible is. That's where we get the word dramatic. And we, we use this word a lot at home with all the girls. It's so dramatic. So much drama here. <laughs> and they're going to be so mad at me. Because a drama must affect us, our emotions, our feelings, right? It's real, it's intense, and that's exactly... When you read the Bible properly, there is this stirring up of affections. It becomes dramatic, for sure. When a scholar says, an audience cannot expect to show up during the interval and understand Act 2, nor to leave at the interval without understanding of the play based seeing just Act 1. So we need Act 1 and Act 2, Old and New Testament together to behold this beautiful drama. And as a, as a drama, as we are thinking about the Bible, as this drama, this beautiful story of God's redemption, I would say that there is a structure. Every, every story must have a structure, amen? There must be a story, a, a structure. Otherwise, we are just like watching Napoleon Dynamite. I know some of you like that movie, but it's the most moronic movie. There's no structure. There's no plot. There's no plot. There's no structure. You have no idea what's going on. And you guys are laughing because you love that movie. I know that. I watched that thing and like, how are you laughing at this thing? And the Bible has a structure. And I would say that the structure that keeps the story moving is the covenants of God. God holds this drama through His covenants. And we're going to talk more about that. I'm not going to expand here. I would say that the theater of this drama takes place from Eden to Egypt to Palestine to Babylon, culminating now with the church and ending with the new heavens and the new earth. And that's very important for us to think about stories and narratives and drama because stories shape our lives. Amen? Stories shape our lives. Look at the movements that are taking place today. And they're all shaped by a narrative, by a story. Stories shape our lives. And as Christians, 
we must be shaped by the story of the Bible, God's story. If we let any other story shape our lives, we will end up in misery and brokenness. That's the truth. That's why you see our society broken, miserable, because they're being shaped by a different story. Uh, Stephen Fowler, you remember him because I quoted him in, in, when you were going through Philippians. And he says, in his commentary in Philippians, he says, especially in Paul is pointing the Philippians to Jesus. And in chapter 2, reminding the Philippians of Jesus, the story of redemption with him emptying himself. And so he says, Paul's practice in Philippians indicates that one of the main activities of Christian friends here. Here's what a, to be a good Christian friend is. One of the main activities of Christian friends is to help each other come to see our past, present, and future as part of God's drum of salvation. It's only when we do this that we can expect to order our common life in the church in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Such a common life will provide the best context for the flourishing of Christian friendships. And that's what I want to do. I want to be a, a faithful friend to you and help you to see this drama, this beautiful story, and how our lives are connected to this wonderful, glorious story. Amen? Second, we saw the word drama. But that's not our drama. That's God's drama. He is the writer. He is the main actor. He is the main subject. Amen? So it's all about God here. And we see that by Jesus. We, we saw this text earlier. Jesus says that the Scriptures is all about Himself, concerning me, about me. So the Bible, this glorious drama, is, has the spotlight on the triune God, and in particular in the Son who comes to bring redemption. So the Bible is not about you. Amen. And the Bible is not about Israel. So, so some people are so emphatic. About, they think that the whole Bible is about Israel. So they're always looking to see what's going on in Israel, in Palestine, as, as if the Bible is all about Israel. No, no, no. The Bible is about God and what He's doing to save His people. Also, glorious. That's a glorious drama. And that's a vital word that I added last night as I was thinking. I had finished the sermon. I had finished the PowerPoint. And it's missing a word here. And that's the word glorious. Kavod, Hebrew. It's heavy. It's a heavy drama. And it's glorious because it's all about the glory of God. And it's glorious because it brings glory to God, this story. Amen? And then last, the word redemption. That's a vital word. God's glorious drama of redemption. The word redemption takes us back where? What is the book of redemption? Exodus, right? Redeeming, redeeming His people. God comes and, he, and the word to redeem is related to ransom, to buy. And it's God buying Israel for Himself. Taking Israel as His wife. And from Exodus, it starts flowing this whole concept of redemption throughout the Scriptures until it culminates with Jesus. So the idea of redemption reminds us of the fall, takes us back to Genesis 3, how because of sin, now man is enslaved to sin, is enslaved to Satan, to death. And redemption implies God buying 
people to himself and making them now his slaves. Redemption is accomplished in order to bring God's people into covenant with him and to dwell with him. So if I ask you, why, why did God do that to Israel in the Old Testament? In Exodus, why, why is God redeeming them from Egypt? Do you remember? He, he tells. He's buying them so they can worship Him. God redeems Israel from Egypt. And think about the whole process here. They pass through the waters. And as they're passing through the waters, that's a symbol of death, leaving Egypt. They pass through the waters and it's like they're coming alive again. It's a resurrection. It's a type of resurrection. And where do they go? To the mountain of the Lord. Redemption in the Bible, another important aspect of redemption is that it's inseparable from creation. So you often see, if you're reading the Bible, Yahweh, the Lord, is your Redeemer and your what? Creator. Creation and redemption are inseparable. Why? Because redemption is God's work to bring about a new creation. As He's buying people, He's restoring them, making them alive again. So it's a picture of a new creation. So my argument is that the, the, the content, as we think about this drama, the drama is God's acting to redeem a people for Himself, to live in His gracious and benevolent presence under, under His reign and rulership. So, let me call Morales, Michael Morales, he says, One is led to affirm the history of redemption along with all its drama, is driven by one theological theme, Yahweh's opening a way for hum humanity to dwell in the divine presence. This journey through the waters to the mountain of God to dwell with Yahweh in, the house, in His house is expressed in cosmogony, in the cosmogony pan pattern as the purpose of creation. God creates men to dwell with Him. In the Exodus pattern of deliverance as the purpose of redemption. Traced through the history of Israel. Relieved and renewed through the temple cultus. And ultimately, it formed the paradigm for all expectations. The end of the journey for the redeemed Israel and the nations. Eternal life with God in the, in the house of a new heavens and earth. The Edenic, Mount Zion. The end of the story is life lived within the radiant glory of His face, the reality of the Sabbath day's cultic theophany within the holy place. That's exactly what the story of the Bible is. Bringing us, saving us, so we may dwell in His presence and enjoy His face, His gracious face upon us. So, I will talk more about the drum of scriptures next Lord's Day. I plan to explain the different acts that we have, Act 1, Act 2, Act 3. But today I want to prioritize the drama of the Exodus in relation to the Lord's Supper as we are about to partake of the Lord's Supper. And now I want to ask you, when the Lord Jesus is instituting, when He's ordaining the Lord's Supper, do you remember what's taking place right there? What, is him, what were Jesus and His disciples doing when He's establishing the Lord's Supper? 
What were they doing? Celebrating the Passover. That's the Passover that they're celebrating. So that's very important. There is a context here for the Lord's Supper. They are celebrating the Passover. The Passover celebration is the heart of Exodus. You don't have Exodus without the Passover. You don't have Passover without Exodus. So they are inseparable. Okay, that's very important. Passover and Exodus, they're inseparable. You need both. And remember the Exodus, sometimes we talk, we talk about Exodus as a book, or you're talking about Exodus as an event. From the call of Moses until Israel arrives in the Holy Land and has a temple there. So, I'm not going to go through the whole Passover here. I hope you can go home or you remember what took place during the Passover. Amen? The Passover was the tenth, number ten, of God's signs and wonders to deliver Israel from Egypt. And you remember what takes place? Israel is delivered by how? Yes, someone else dies on behalf of the firstborn. And that's a spotless lamb. And that's what's taking place during the Passover. I would say that the Passover is the climax in a titanic battle that's waged between the God of Israel and the gods of Egypt. The Passover becomes so important, brothers and sisters, that the whole year, the whole calendar of Israel is reoriented around the Passover. So, the Passover becomes the first month of the year of the nation of Israel. So we read in Exodus 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So we see that there is a new beginning and it is as if it was a new creation with Israel. They are passing through the waters. You have the sacrifice of the Lamb and they are as if we're coming out of death into life. The sacrifice of the lamb was on behalf of the people of Israel. That lamb took the place of the firstborn of Israel. And each household, you think about each household that's smearing the blood on the post, is showing how this whole kingdom was supposed to be a kingdom of priests. They are exercising priestly function, the households. And then each, each household in Egypt becomes a household of death. Amen? Each household in Egypt is a household of death. You, you know, they're crying, there is death, wailing. So, in the Bible, let me see if I have here. I don't have, but it says, in the Bible, the land of Egypt was itself thought as a land of death. A symbol of the watery grave, she all. The exodus was the redemption of God's firstborn son from death, a resurrection of Israel from Sheol. And that's exactly the picture what we have here. They're being brought to life through the waters to the mountain in a covenant with the Lord. So you think about what is the purpose? What, what's going on here? You have this lamb, the sacrifice, the Lord's bringing Israel out of Egypt. What is the purpose here? And then they tell us. Moses tells us. Look how he says. 
as he's singing, they just crossed the, the, the waters. They passed through death. They're coming to life now. And they sing a new song, the song of the sea, the beautiful hymn. And Moses says the purpose of this redemption. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. Huh. Eden was placed in a mountain. God's abode, his dwelling place, you read all through the Psalm, all through the Old Testament, is where? The mountain of the Lord. The mountain of the Lord. That's how in ancient times we're seeing, as the highest place. So the purpose is you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. So the purpose of redemption, this Passover that they're celebrating, is to dwell with God in His presence forever and ever. That's the purpose of redemption. It's fascinating that the Passover is a meal, right? They're eating together. They're celebrating a meal, preparing them for a covenant because covenant implies a meal. Notice they had, to, they had to eat, they had to stop and partake of a meal. Before the crossing of the sea, and then after the crossing of the sea, they have a meal with God, as the covenant is to be established. Then Moses and Aaron, Abad and Abihu, the seventh of the elders of Israel, went up and they saw the God of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. What is Jesus doing with His disciples? Eating and drinking. Fellowship. What are we supposed to do in the Lord's Supper? You see, that there, there is a pattern flowing here. Covenant, Passover, Exodus, eating, drinking with God. But the Bible does not begin with Exodus, right? What's the first book of the Bible? Genesis. That's important. Because... The drum of redemption is taking place. It's not like it starts with the Exodus. It's not like it starts with the Passover. Actually, there is a flow of the drama. And that's very important. We don't begin our Bibles with Exodus. Therefore, we begin with Genesis. And we see that this drama of Scriptures is already taking place since Genesis. And I would say especially after Genesis 3, when the nations are in exile. Sin caused the people to be in exile from God. And that's why God calls Abraham to be a blessing and bring people to restore this fellowship with him. And you think about Abraham. And Abraham goes through a type of exodus as he leaves, as he needs to get out of Ur, Sheol, death, and come to another mountain, Mount Moriah, where the Lord brings him. And as we come to Genesis 22, as we see the, the drama of Abraham's life, and you remember, it's a beautiful story there, and it's on Mount Moriah. There's a play with the Hebrew words here, to see. On Mount Moriah, that Abraham sees that the Lord provides the sacrifice. And then it's later on the same mountain that Solomon will build the temple and the sacrificial system will take place with the celebration of the Passover. So do you see how this story is all connected? 
It's all connected. One beautiful story. Genesis ends in and with death. That's how the book of Genesis ends. So Joseph died. Being 110 years old, they embalmed him. That's meaning his dad. And he was put in a coffin. Once again, repeating three times, he's dead. And then to emphasize, in Egypt, the place of the dead. That's how Genesis ends. Genesis begins with life and ends with death. And it's preparing us for Exodus to come. From Eden to the grave in Egypt. The trajectory of the book of Genesis from fullness of life to death. From being the presence of God to alienation. So the book of Exodus comes and narrates how Israel is reborn out of this grave and ushered into the divine presence, reversing the movement of Genesis. You see, there, there is a beautiful coherence here. And as we, we are going to partake of the Lord's Supper, think about these things. It's not a random situation that Jesus is establishing and we do that just for the sake of doing. No, it's flowing from this drama of scriptures. And then we know that this first exodus was not enough. Amen? Because if it was enough, we would not need a second exodus. So God brings them out of Egypt, but Egypt is not out of their hearts. They come out of Egypt, but their hearts are still in Egypt. And that's what the prophets, that's another body of literature in the Bible. The prophets, they start speaking about another exile. But they're not alone. Moses had spoken about that. In Deuteronomy 4.27, Moses had seen that they would go to exile again because of sin. There, would be, there, 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 there was the need for a better exodus, a greater Passover. So Moses says, And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples. There will be another exile. Prophet, the prophet Hosea, for example, he, he talks about the cap captivity by the Assyrians and the Babylonians as just going back to Egypt. That's the, the language he's, he's using. So Hosea 8 says, As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and they eat, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt, for Israel has forgotten his maker. He shall return to Egypt. Now that's just a picture of exile. They're going to exile once again. And that's exactly what happens. The Assyrians come with the northern kingdom. The Babylonians come with the southern kingdom. And they're all in exile. And they need a better exodus. And the prophets speak of a better exodus. There will be a greater exodus. Especially Isaiah, Ezekiel. And they are all tracing this new exodus with the language of a new creation. So you're reading Isaiah, and you have all these prophecies, prophecies of the Lord rescuing His people, and suddenly He brings all this imagery of Eden. Have you noticed that? You read Isaiah, and then He's speaking about the Lord bringing His people, especially after chapter 40, and goes on, and then He starts bringing a picture of Eden. Men and beasts together, dwelling in peace. What, what, what is that? Going back to the Garden of Eden. So redemption and recreation connected. 
And Isaiah especially, he says that this new exodus, this greater exodus that's coming, will be accomplished by whom? The servant of the Lord. There will be a greater exodus, and he, this exodus will be accomplished by the servant of the Lord. He actually, Isaiah 53, he actually will be the Passover lamb. Servant of the Lord. Do you know what the title of Moses who led the first exodus was? Do you know what the title of Moses? The servant of the Lord. And he led the first exodus. And now Isaiah borrowing all this, all this drama. And he says, there is another servant of the Lord that's coming to bring a better and greater exodus. So, as we come to the New Testament, moving the story quickly here because we don't have much time. As we come to the New Testament, and Jesus commands us to celebrate the Lord's Supper in the context of the Passover Supper. It's amazing what's taking place here. He's showing us how this drum of Scripture is being fulfilled in Him. When Jesus comes as a man, He embraces the exile of mankind. It's as if He's embracing the exile. In Philippians chapter 2, though He was God Himself, He emptied Himself, took on the form of a slave. Exile from glory. All the Gospels, all the Gospels account, they picture Jesus as this great Passover lamb, the new and greater Passover lamb, the better Exodus. The new Exodus would bring a greater Moses, a new Passover, a greater deliverance, a new covenant, a new Torah, a new temple, and that's exactly what we see with the Gospel accounts. That's what they're doing. Think about the Gospel of Matthew. Tracing Jesus exactly as this fulfiller of the greater Exodus, as a greater Moses. Crosses the sea, starting chapter 5, he goes up the mountain, he gives a new Torah, he becomes the temple. He is the greater Passover. Amen? In Luke, it's fascinating. As he, Jesus is in the Mount of Transfiguration, there's so many similarities with Exodus as they're in a mountain. They are surrounded by a cloud. God is speaking. And it's fascinating that we see Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, the law and the prophets. Jesus in the whole Old Testament in, embodied right there. And look what they're talking about. Where Jesus and Moses and Elijah, and they're talking about Jesus, what? The English translation is called Departure. Exodus, about his exodus, because that's exactly what he came to accomplish. The exodus, the greater exodus of God's people. You look at the Gospel of John, and the Gospel of John is very clear that Jesus is the new and greater Passover lamb. He opens and he ends his Gospel account as Jesus being this perfect Passover lamb. So, as we are moving and we come to Jesus establishing the Lord's Supper, we see that it's all flowing from Genesis up until Him. And we'll, consummate it, we'll be consummated in the new heavens and new earth. And we keep celebrating the Lord's Supper until He comes and brings the, the consummation of the inauguration of this greater exodus. 
So, we are here. You think about the Bible and this wonderful drama of scriptures. And it's not something there to entertain us. It, it's actually so powerful that draws us and brings us inside this glorious story. For those who have embraced Jesus by faith, we are part of this divine comedy. It's a divine comedy. What is a comedy? It's a story with a happy ending. That's what a comedy is. In ancient times, a comedy was something that had a happy ending. And that's exactly what we are part of. Those who have embraced Christ. Amen? We know the end of the story. We know the end. So let me ask you, why are you so full of fear? Why are you so full of fear? Do you believe this story here? Do you believe that? Do you believe how it ends? So why are you so full of fear? If we are indeed in Christ and in par part, part of this magnificent drama of scriptures, that we know the end. Why are we freaking out about what's going on? See, as the Passover lamb, the, the author of Hebrews tells us that he delivered us from the fear of death. Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Who shall separate us from the love of, Christ, of God in Christ Jesus? Sword? Famine? Pestilence? In all these things, we are more than conquerors. He knows the drama. He knows how the story ends. And that's why he's so bold, Paul, in proclaiming the gospel. So, as we come to the Lord's Supper, Think about why do we have bread and, and, and a cup? What, what's up with that? That goes back, that goes back, all the way, a meal. Amen? That's a meal. That represents a glorious. Bread was the picture of food that you eat, then you have the cup to drink. And that was when you had a covenant, you had a meal. You have the party celebrating that covenant. And that's what Jesus is saying here. With me now, the greater, the better, the best exodus has taken place. A new covenant is being established. A new creation is being inaugurated. Amen? That's all that we are celebrating during the Lord's Supper. This glorious drum of Scripture that we are part of. Sometimes we, because of our sins, we start doing things so without thinking and, and considering. Let us not do that with the Lord's Supper. That's marvelous. Think about that. How many people outside this place are just living their lives? They have no idea what we are doing here. 
And actually, by God's grace, we can celebrate something that God's people longed for, longed for, to be redeemed from sin. And now to come before the Lord and have a meal with Him. Why, why redemption in, under the Old Covenant? To dwell with God. And what are we doing? We are having a meal with God together. That's what's taking place. So, may the Lord help us. May the Lord help us to understand the beauty of His drama. And how by His grace He has inserted us inside this drama to be vessels of mercy, not vessels of wrath and judgment. So Lord, we thank you. We thank for your kindness and your goodness towards us. Lord, for those who are not saved, I pray that Jesus Christ would come through the power of the Holy Spirit and bring a glorious exodus in their hearts. Remove them from the exile of your presence. Move them from darkness, death, into life and light. Lord, we thank you. We truly stand in awe that you'd save us. They would place our lives in this majestic drum of the scriptures and to be part of your family and to celebrate this union with you by sitting at your table, eating and drinking with you. So we thank you. We give you all the glory all the honor you alone deserve that Lord we pray these things in Jesus name Amen